Buckle up, Buttercup, because this is the Lunduke Journal of Technology podcast for whatever the heck day it is in the year of our Lord 2023. And today, I'm answering your questions. Whatever questions you got, I don't care. You ask them over at lunduke.locals.com. And as long as they're generally computery, I'm going to go down the line. I'm going to sort by number of likes, start at the top, and I'm going to go until I run out of steam. It's, it's one of my favorite shows to do because you guys get to pick all the topics and you guys come up with a lot of ridiculous topics that I would have never thought of doing a show on. So it is fantastic. If you're listening to the podcast version. You can go grab the video version over at lunduke.locals.com. I'm not posting the video version of this anywhere else because it's just too fancy. You, you get me in a in a pineapple-covered shirt talking in a little tiny thumbnail. I mean, what more could you want in life? Here's the first question. This comes from Microworks. He says, Is there any Hanukkah-themed software packages for Linux or Apple that or otherwise that you're aware of not really my friend uh so we got we're right at the beginning of november right now uh hanukkah this year starts uh it was at the second week of december i think it moves around for those of you who don't know the 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 the, the jewish the hebrew calendar is lunar right so it it doesn't exactly line up with the calendar that that we use most of the time it shifts just a little bit so hanukkah tends to start any time from a little bit after thanksgiving to overlapping with christmas and it runs for 8 days and it's usually shifts around somewhere in there uh, this year it's slightly on the earlier side it's it's kind of the second week of December so we got a little bit of time to get ready the only that I Hanukkah themed piece of software that I am aware of is one that I made and it's just a little tiny thing it's a super little thing I created this thing called the Lunduke holiday bash script uh, you can get it up at github I'm going to link there on the screen, github.com slash Brian Lunduke slash Lunduke Holiday. And it's a simple GitHub or a simple bash script, a singular script that takes a, uh, a an argument, a simple parameter that tells that says, hey, display an ASCII animation, a colored ASCII animation of either a menorah. Uh, I came up with this little little simple ASCII menorah that lights one night at a time, um, or a uh, Christmas tree with blinking lights, um, or a fireworks display, and I think that might be it. I think those are the three that it has right now. I, 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 as I as I come across really cool like bash script animations for different holidays, I'll kind of modify them and add them in. Or if I get 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 a particular urge to create one myself, I'll I'll add it in there. But it has those three right now, and that's the only the only three I really know of at the moment. I mean, there's just there's just not a lot. There's there's not a lot of of Hanukkah themed software out there that I'm aware of. If anyone knows of any i would love to to hear about it uh go ahead and post it over at lunduke.locals.com but no that's it that's it as far as i know um my little bash script is about the only thing for linux that is hanukkah related whatsoever <laughs> then again to be fair i don't know of a whole lot of like christmas or easter or etc 
um, holiday-related software either. I'm sure there is. I mean, I'm sure there's there's a couple of like I'm sure there's like Santa Claus screensavers and and things like that. But uh, this is this is the only thing I'm aware of. Uh, Payleg asks, "What would you trust more, open source software from big tech?" or closed source software from a small independent team or a single developer. Oh man, I mean, I mean, logically, logically my brain says go with the open source because it can be audited. But then the other part of my brain says, whoa, hold on Haas, that's not quite that simple. Because realistically, who audits the source code of the software they use? I mean, really? Like, I'm a developer, I program, and I've shipped software using seven languages, eight languages now. I think a bunch of you are in the same boat. Have you audited all of the open source software on your system, gone through every single line, and understood what it did? If you haven't, then why would you trust it? Even if the source code is there. We, we, we learn every day, it seems like, about problems, security issues, vulnerabilities, um, and all sorts of stuff that gets that's in software for years, if not decades, without anyone even noticing it. Simple, obvious stuff. I mean, heck, look at the, the recent thing with, with Ubuntu, where a, a, a version of Ubuntu gets shipped where nobody even bothered to install it in all the languages that it supported. So they didn't know that, that it was filled with just a whole bunch of like, just like angry, uh, kind of profane statements about people. Like it was, it, like they called it hate speech. I don't even know if that's the right word for it, but it's, it was filled with all sorts of just like nasty stuff. And they, they would have seen it if they would have installed it. So the, the company and the community that built it never even used it before they shipped it, let alone looked through the code or looked through all the localization strings. They just didn't do it. And that's the people who made it. Now, <laughs> and it took a little while before, before someone installed it and noticed it. Right. And so if that sort of thing is happening in the most obvious and easy to catch ways, what else is in there? I mean, do you go through for those of you who use um, Firefox? Firefox is open source. Have you audited? Excuse me. I have a cold. <laughs> I just sniffled into the microphone. Something fierce. That was not uh, anything else. That was that was just straight up boogers in my nose. You're welcome, by the way. That is now documented for all of you to have for all time and eternity. That is the sound of Lunduke having a cold and sniffling directly into the microphone. You're welcome. Um, but have, have any of you actually audited and gone through all of the Firefox source code? If not, why do you feel comfortable with it? I mean, we know Firefox as a company inserts all sorts of weird um, calling home features, marketing features, because they did that big investment in that German marketing firm that does the spyware technology. And uh, uh, they do things like they they turn on like TV show extensions. They did the thing for uh, Mr. Robot. Remember that one? They did the Mr. Robot thing where they installed and enabled that Mr. Robot TV show extension on every Firefox version that was out there in existence because they got paid by the company to do it. Like they do stuff, weird stuff like that, like all the time. So why? 
why why would there not be all sorts of calling home things and and weird subversive features in there i i i, I don't know why they wouldn't do that i mean they they do that sort of thing so have you checked it i i haven't checked it i'm i, I doubt anyone has I doubt, I doubt even most Firefox developers who work on Firefox fully understand the source code of Firefox. So why would I trust open source software, a large open source software package from a big tech company? I don't know why I would. So if with that in mind, if I'm not going to audit the code and none of, none of you guys are going to audit the code, then it might as well be closed source from the point of view of trusting what the code does, right? There's still benefits to open source software. Like I can compile it maybe for a new architecture or if they stop supporting it, we can still make builds. There's, there's still lots of benefits. But from a trust perspective, I don't see, I don't see how in this instance, I don't see how the open source from a big tech would be a benefit over closed source from a small group or a single dev. So, yeah, I don't see them as all that different. But probably the single dev or small team is probably going to be a little bit more trustworthy in that they're going to have less motivation probably to put something weird in there. I mean, that's just the, that's just the reality of it. So if, if, if someone came to me and said, here are two web browsers. One is open source by Microsoft or Google, and the other is closed source, developed by two guys, and both of them browse the web equally well. Which one are you going to use? I'm going to use the closed source one written by two guys. If, all, if everything else is equal, and as far as I can tell, you know, they both seem equally compatible with modern web and all that sort of thing, I'm going to use the closed source one written by two guys over the open source one written by Google or Microsoft. That's just the way I'm going to I'm going to roll with it because I am going to trust them a little bit more. Also, I like an underdog. I like people sitting in their garage developing software. I like people sitting at their home and making the software. I, I, I feel I just I prefer that over a bunch of people sitting in a boardroom making making decisions by committee over what the next version is going to have. I think better software results that way. Uh, that's just my personal feeling. Uh, Mike, Mike asks, have you ever read the, <laughs> the art of computer programming in parts or in whole? And do you own the books up to the currently published volume five volumes? Mike, there's five volumes. I thought there was only four. Oh man. Uh, so, well, so Newth started the, the project, the art of computer programming in, for those of you who don't know, this is, this is like legendary stuff in 1960 something. Uh, was it the late sixties? No, 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 no. It was early sixties, early sixties. Uh, Donald Newth started, uh, the art of computer programming. And when it started, he was just going to write this one book about computer programming. Right. And then as time went on, he just kept adding to it and it, it became a bigger and bigger thing. And so technically it is, it is one, it is one book, like one thing, but it's in multiple volumes, right? And so um, I think there are planned future volumes up through volume seven, eight, nine, something like that. And uh, he hasn't gotten to all of them yet. Uh, he's been working on them for what, like 60 plus years now, 60 years. Uh, and we're, we're up to volume four, volume five, I, I guess. Oh my heavens. No. Um, I have read 
snippets of it. I have not, I do not own them and I have not read them in whole. Um, I, I really can't even say I've read them in part because I haven't sat down and like started reading and just haven't gotten very far. I've only read snippets. Like I was curious about what he said about certain things. So I read snippets or as I was doing some, some research for some history of some programming language stuff, I'd read little snippets from his earlier portions. But, um, but like only a few pages here and there. I, it, being able to sit down and read it all would be kind of, kind of awesome. I, I would like to do that at some point. But the art of computer programming is, is I can't even say it's on my to-do list because it's such a big thing. You know what I mean? It's one of those, I don't know, I don't know that I want to sit down and read it. Like I want to have read it, but I don't know that I actually want to sit down and do it. Like it just doesn't sound fun. It, like the, the little bits I read were hard to get through. And I only read like snippets. I can only imagine what a multi-volume set of tombs of the art of pro computer programming would be like if I'm trying to get through them all. I, 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 I just don't think I can. I don't think I can. There's, there's so many books that I read in the early part of my career on software development and the computer industry and everything else that were just brutal slogs to get through. Most of them were assigned to me by by either my professors before I dropped out of college or uh, by my managers at, at one company or another. Microsoft, man, Microsoft assigned me so many books to read because I was kind of this, I was on this dev management track at Microsoft for a number of years and they had so many books that, you know, that my, my managers wanted me to read and, and like some of them were just, just horrible to get through. There was this book and I've mentioned it once or twice before, but it's just, it's just brutal. It's called, um, uh, was it testing computer software by a guy named Kem Kaner. And it's, it's a book about testing software. And this was when I was an SDET, meaning I was a software development engineer in tests. So I, I developed software and automation tools and whatnot to support the quality assurance and testing departments uh, of the of the software we were building. So I, I you know I built like automation tools and build scripts and and things like that. And so I, I, I had to read this book, and I don't believe. I've ever lost more brain cells than when I was reading that book. It was just mind-numbingly boring, tedious, and stupid. It just, it was, some of it was so obvious. It was like, why is this even being written down? Other parts were so absolutely dumb and wrong. It was like, why is that being written down? And by the time you ended, you were like, wow, someone spent a lot of their time writing this. And then you realize that this guy, Cam Kaner, he wrote multiple versions, multiple editions of it and sold tons of copies of these books to teach people how to test computer software. It was, it was brutal. And I've read quite a few books around programming along those lines. And honestly, like uh, even like the the like Straustrup and everyone else, all like the C++ and C Bibles, I, I've read a lot of those. They're hard to slog through. It's brutal. I, I just I just can't. I love books and I love programming. Programming books don't make me happy. I love programming manuals. Like I love, I love references and manuals that I can leaf through and look for the APIs and find snippets of source code and examples. And 
maybe short little how-tos, but some of those books, oh man, they're like 500 pages of just, oh God, please get to the, I'm, oh, I'm lost, I'm dead. I just can't do it. Um, Ross asks, but good question though. If you could have one big fancy industrial maker-like machine, a printing press, a five-axis CNC, an injection mold, or something like that, what would you pick and why? Assume you also have the skills required to use the machine. Oh, this is easy. If I were to sit down and I could only have one, like 3D printer, a printing press, etc., it would be the CNC machine. It would be the five-axis CNC machine. Because, and here's why. Because let's assume the world goes to hell, right? Like, and... Um, uh, 3D printing filament makers just aren't a thing anymore, right? Well, then the 3D printers get harder and harder to use. And what if uh, the manufacturer for the injection molded plastics that you use for your injection molded machine, they start getting hard to come by or expensive or they change how they're, they're processed and what they're made from and you don't like it, well, then that's a problem. But the five axis CNC machine, you can use wood right? You can take a block of wood, create 3D models for, you know, carving the darn things out. And then you have wood stuff and wood stuff is cool. I saw there was a, uh, 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 a wooden Game Boy. Someone had taken an original Gen 1 Game Boy and used a CNC machine, one of those five axis CNC machines to carve out all the, the pieces and parts of this Game Boy. Yeah. So you had the case that was made of wood. I think it made it out of walnut and something like that. Oh, it was gorgeous. And you can do that sort of thing. You want to build a new case for a Raspberry Pi. Well, design it and then have your CNC machine mill it out. And then, well, what if there's a, a market for that? What if other people want to buy that? Okay, great. You have the models. Just get a block of wood that'll work and that's the right size. Put it in your machine and let it mill out the pieces and parts. And now you've got wooden pieces of it all. Oh, it's beautiful. The, the CNC machines, I've, I haven't seen a good one for less than like five grand though. Uh, that, that is the hard part. Like you can get, you know, a great 3D printer for a fraction of that cost. But the CNC machines, man wood right as long as you can get electricity to it and your computers are still working you can still go out chop down a tree carve it down to the right size put it in your machine and have it mill out you a uh, parts of your game boy parts of your raspberry pi whatever you're making little toys for your kids chess pieces whatever oh that's the way to go man that's just awesome but that is a that is a personal goal of mine is is to get, is to have a workshop set up with a nice CNC machine and a dedicated drafting station nearby where I can sit down and and model out all of them and and design out cases for everything I want to have so I can have nice wooden cases for things cuz that is class that is just pure class I mean wouldn't you want for your game devices heck for your laptops for anything wouldn't you rather have a wooden case than plastic. Oh, I sure would. Um, uh, Brendan. Brendan asks, 
uh, it used to be more common that a kernel would be replaced, either in the same system or by a new system built on a different kernel. In modern times, kernels for desktops and servers seems to seem to have an infinite lifetime. <laughs> that is kind of true. Now, question one, why is this? And number two, what do you think are the chances that a totally new kernel could displace an existing kernel in the coming decade or two? I would guess the most likely way for this to happen would be if Microsoft made another new kernel for Windows, but I feel that is exceptionally unlikely. This is actually it's kind of an interesting question. So there was, if you look through the six 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s, and even up into the early 2000s, new operating system kernels, man, they were just popping out of the woodwork. Boom, boom, boom. There was just kernels coming everywhere. Kernels from Microsoft, they had their R&D departments, you know, they had multiple different kernels. I mean, shoot, early versions of Windows had two kernels, and then they were on top of DOS, which had an whole other kernel technically, and then different different versions of Windows, they replaced the kernels with new kernels, and then new versions of Windows would come out with new kernels, and then they'd have an R&D kernel that would never ship for anything, but it'd be cool, and then they'd have the Windows CE kernel. There's kernels everywhere, and that's just one company. Uh, things were always happening at, at Apple too. You know, they were doing major updates to the Mac kernel such that it's almost a new thing. And then they had, you know, uh, then they had Copeland, which would be a new thing again and brand new kernel. And and then, you know, Mac OS X came along. That wasn't a new kernel, but it was a modification of an old kernel. And there, there was just always new kernels. I think what happened was we hit a point where most of the kernels that we currently have are both A, good enough, right? They're getting the job done, right? The modern Linux kernel, the modern NT kernel, etc., the modern mock kernel, they're 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 good enough to get the job done for Mac OS, for iOS, for Windows, for Linux-based systems. They're they're getting it done. And so much is built on top of them now. They're with such huge economies where billions of dollars are being made that they're in general replacing those kernels is going to end up costing a lot of money, not just for the companies and communities and foundations and whatnot that run them, but for all of the people that utilize them. There's going to be a huge cost associated with it. Even if they make it a fairly seamless drop-in approach, there's going to be a big cost associated with that new kernel rollout. And then for a period of time, you got to support multiple kernels, etc., whether it's on the server, mobile devices, desktops, whatever. And so there has to be a good reason to roll out and develop this new kernel. Now, that doesn't mean it's not being done. I mean, Google's got Fuchsia and Microsoft does have replacement kernels in their R&D departments going on all the time. They have multiple kernels in development as an R&D project all the time that in theory, at some points, are proposed as replacing the Windows kernel and whatnot. And there's always new kernels being developed in the open source world. I mean, we're seeing that with uh, 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 Serenity, like Serenity OS, right? Serenity OS is a, is a new kernel and a new system based on top of it. So we're seeing those sorts of things happen. But it's hard because most of what we're basing the current world on is good enough, right? I mean, it it just really is. It, Outside of maybe adding support for additional hardware, if we're being really honest with ourselves, most of us would be pretty happy with the Linux kernel from 10 years ago, 
20 years ago? I mean, outside of, you know, specific hardware support, right? Yet they keep adding new features to it. I mean, it's so much so that the current Linux kernel is, is wildly different from the Linux kernel of, of 10, 20 years ago, 20 years ago, especially. It's just changed a lot. A lot has morphed. And realistically, the NT kernel is kind of the same way. It's not, it's not the exact same kernel that we had when you were shipping, say, Windows NT 4, right? That Windows NT 4 kernel versus the Windows 10 kernel is, is miles apart. They do, you can see where one eventually leads to another, and you can see where they do have some design similarities and even some original code still there, but they have fundamentally changed quite a lot. They've, but it's been more of, a, of an evolutionary process rather than a revolutionary, here's a new kernel, let's, let's change it out for a new thing, like what you're talking about there. Now, that said, I think that there is a a bit of room for new kernels to come in and breathe a breath of fresh air, basically, into the operating system space. But there has to be a good reason for it, right? Like we're, what we're seeing with like Serenity OS is the reason is for fun, right? It's, it, it's being developed how the developers want it to be, de be developed just for their own pure happiness and joy. And I think that that is probably about as good a reason as any at this point. Because it, if I were to take the Linux kernel right now, Let's say I wanted to build my own operating system right now, right this very second, and I wanted to build up my own operating system with my own GUI and own everything. I don't know why I wouldn't just use the Linux kernel, even if I didn't care about necessarily Linux software compatibility. The vast amount of functionality that's provided to me by the Linux kernel and the huge amount of hardware support that it grants solves 90% of the most difficult problems of creating a new operating system right out of the gate. And so Linux especially has a, has a very special place in that regard. So part of me is very pessimistic about the future of Linux, right? I, I've talked about it a bit, and I'm going to be talking about it a bit more in the, in the days ahead. There, there are some real distinct problems with Linux development, both from a technical point of view and an organizational point of view and in a governmental point of view. However, it's progressed so far and has such wide hardware support and wide feet or a number of features that it's hard to imagine why you would throw that out and start anew. Because the, while there are a small handful of features that would be nice, not least of which is having something that's a little less bloated and a little easier to maintain, because once you have software in development for 30 plus years, it tends to get a bit crusty around the edges. But outside of that, I don't know, I don't know what else you need, it, especially if you're looking at this from a manager standpoint. You have to you have to justify the development cost and support costs for something new you're not going to go for that. I mean, look at look at NT. NT is kind of in the same boat. You've got the, this NT kernel with a driver architecture, really three driver architectures at this point <laughs> that are still supported. I'm trying to trying to remember what all is supported. But yeah, and like multiple driver architectures supported that has huge amounts of hardware support. Do you toss that out in, and then have to restart over and have a new, a new kernel, a, a new set of subsystems, and a new driver architecture? 
that maybe every single one of your partners has to develop new drivers for? Oh, man. I mean, that's just a monumental headache. So there has to be a good reason. Performance, stability, and features. And NT and Linux, despite their crustiness, despite their bloatedness, there's just not a good reason to toss them out. That's why we are where we are. That's why the, the systems are where they are. And that's why many other kernels, such as what we see from multiple BSDs, NetBSD, OpenBSD, FreeBSD, Haiku, Serenity, and multiple others, have yet to fully burst through and and become far more popular is they do not have the hardware support uh, that 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 Linux and NT enjoy and they don't have any real big significant features that change the lives of people you know what I mean like it doesn't change everything it doesn't make suddenly make something possible that was impossible before it just might do a few things here and there better but not not monumentally so. So that's where where we're at where we're at. And I don't know that that's necessarily a good thing. I think I think the 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 lack of change, the stagnancy that we've we've we're seeing in the kernel development space in that regard because of all that, I think is overall possibly a net negative for computer science in general. But it's where we're at. Uh, Rabbit Pedagog asks, "It's 1985 and you are not rich." That, that rings true. I remember 1985. I was not rich. Uh, but you need a computer. Which do you purchase? Ooh. Which do I purchase? 1985 was a fun time. You know, we've, we've, 1985 is interesting because we've got early Windows. Very early Windows. We've got the very earliest Macintoshes. Right? We, oh man, we got a lot of cool machines. <laughs> uh, but you know what? You know what? Uh, oh, I'm going to go, and, and, we, and we've, we've still got, you know, a lot of the Atari line, but not like the later STs that came out. We don't have the two GSs yet, um, but we have the Commodore 64 uh, and some of the variants therein. We have some of the early DOS machines. You know, if I... I'm not rich, honestly, honestly, I'm going to go with whatever the best Apple II is at the moment. I know that seems may seem strange, but that includes possibly even a clone. And either that or a Commodore 64, one of the two, uh, because I'm not rich, right? So I'm not going to go buy a Mac. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna buy a Mac. I, I'm not gonna get any any of the the high end IBM PCs. I'm gonna be getting one of the the budget machines. I'm clearly not gonna get a Spectrum because those things, the keyboards on those, make me so sad. And I'm not gonna get one of the Ataris with the membrane keyboards because I, I don't like those membrane keyboards. The, the, those just those just bug me. Um, but the the Commodore 64 keyboard I liked, and uh, the Apple II keyboard I liked. And both of those had a large amount of software available that was budget friendly and very big communities of people that had the software that I could copy some things from because <laughs> I'm not rich. Um, I'm going to probably get Apple II or Commodore 64. I'm going to go with one of those two. They're both great machines. I mean, they really are. I mean, both great machines with both some stellar games, good word processors. Uh, I can get all my work done on them. 
And, uh, and if I wanted to get into the software development business, uh, they're both machines that still at that point enjoyed some sales, you know, so I could get into making software for those machines. They're still, they're still viable at that point. That's what I'd go with. Uh, XET7 asks, have you coded graphical apps for Amiga or the Amiga Research OS with, uh, with MUI or some other GUI toolkit? Was it better or worse compared to GUI coding uh, at uh, some other operating systems? Okay, so I've, I've never shipped any software on an Amiga. I never have. I've dabbled in Amiga OS software development, never in Eros, the Amiga research operating system. I've never done that. I've also never done Morphos, which is kind of Amiga OS inspired, or any of those systems. But I have dabbled in original Amiga OS development. I, I almost... Uh, I almost took a job at, at Amiga Incorporated when they were having their resurgence uh, many years back. And I, um, I've dabbled in it, uh, but mostly just from a, a tinkering standpoint. And yes, I've developed a few like little sample applications using, using, using MUI. Uh, MUI is the Magic User Interface, uh, for those of you who don't know about Amiga applications. So the Magic User Interface is, is really one of the, the common, one of the common ways of developing graphical applications on an Amiga. And I did not like it. It felt kludgy to me. I didn't enjoy the process. It wasn't horrible. It was not horrible, but it, it wasn't great. It, when, when I compared, like if you compared developing a MUI application to let's say, um, let's say, let's go back to like the early 90s and you develop a MUI application, so a Magic user, user Interface Amiga OS application, and you compare that to a Win16 application or, um, you know, an X11 application and whatnot, I found the process of developing um, uh, uh, X Windows and Macintosh applications significantly more logical than the MUI magic user interface applications. There was just, there was just something about it I found more logical. And I think though, that wasn't necessarily an indication that the MUI was badly designed, more where I came from as a developer, right? So like um, at that, by the point that I was looking at Amiga graphical applications, I was already really familiar with developing graphical desktop software in C and C++ for Windows, in C and C++ for Unix workstations, in Pascal and C for Macintosh, uh, classic Macintosh. And so these sorts of things were really familiar to me. And so mad, the magic user interface, I found, I found weird and kludgy. <laughs> and I really like Amigas a lot. And, it, and some, some MUI-based applications are incredibly cool. So my guess is that was more of me just not overcoming some sort of mental hurdle that I already had. So that, that, I'm the wrong person to ask there. Um, that said, uh, I, I don't know. If, if, I were to, if I were to list my five favorite graphical frameworks... Uh, none of them from the Amiga would be on there, unfortunately, as cool as the Amigas are. Um, all right, uh, I, I should say, we've been going through these all in order, more or less, from the most voted for downward, and we're not going to get to a bunch of them just looking at the time, and one or two of them I have intentionally skipped 
because the topics are very, very similar to ones that I plan to do articles or videos on in the next week or two or three or so, like I've been planning on it. And so I'm just skipping over those questions entirely. So um, like a, a guy named Dirt over in the forum or in lunduke.locals.com asked, you know, a specific question and it kind of touched on something that I, I want to I do a piece on. So I'm skipping his question entirely. So if, if I'm skipping your question, don't feel put upon. Just remember that there might be something better coming for it. A little more thought out. Um, but there's there's two uh, two questions I want to I want to specifically tackle here that were a little out of order, and because the the topics I think are are really interesting right now, and the first is from Parzix. Parzix asks, is there an operating system with the potential to be the new Linux, something of an underdog, but with enough support and development to be useful, and. The, the answer to that, I think, is, is yes, there are multiple operating systems with the potential to be the new Linux, right? Let's just put it aside and say not mobile, not server, but desktop, right? For laptops and desktop computers, what could be the new, like, up and coming, the new alternative to, to Apple and Microsoft? What could that OS be? And I think... It's both inspiring and depressing, the, the answer, because we've got multiple operating systems that are right there. We've got multiple operating systems that are either getting ready to, to just crash through that brick wall and, and be the Kool-Aid man and, and yell, oh yeah, and be that, that new Linux. And I'm thinking like Serenity and Haiku predominantly. Uh, but but honestly, FreeBSD and FreeBSD-based systems would also would also count in that in that category. They're quality systems. They're highly mature systems. And in the case of Haiku and FreeBSD, they're held back by those working on it. And that is both their choice and a bummer. Um, like. I mostly want to focus on Haiku for a second because the FreeBSD thing, I have some complaints about FreeBSD and I've been, I've been making notes about this for a little, for a little while. Um, and uh, I've thought about doing a kind of a Linux sucks type show about FreeBSD, naming it something like FreeBSD is friggin' stupid or something like that. But they just, they, they kind of go their own route, right? And they make some great decisions and they make some terrible decisions. It's a hodgepodge of each. And uh, I respect them for it. And I probably will need to make fun of them for all of that. But let's focus on Haiku for a second. Because Haiku realistically has a huge amount of power. It has a large amount of refinement. And it has a large enough application base that if it were to focus in certain key areas, it could be the new Linux in six months to a year. Like, like maybe not replacing Linux, but like people could be like, oh yeah, I could absolutely just drop that into my system and I could use it and rock and roll with it six months to a year from now. Easy. 
But it's held back because not necessarily because of technological reasons, but because of management reasons, because of how the project is run and administered and what they choose to focus on and the like. It is slowly deteriorating. The system is becoming slower. The system is becoming almost buggier. Um, and they're, they're focusing on, instead of shipping something great, they're focusing on widening their approach and shipping more things of lower quality. And I, I know many people, uh, the Haiku developers watch this show and listen to this show. And, and I think a lot of you do a fantastic work. And I think your system is, is glorious. And I would, I would love to see it, it succeed. Um, but it, it's, it feels almost like it's being sabotaged, right? So there's so there's there's FreeBSD and Haiku. Then there's Serenity, and Serenity is a little bit of a different situation because Serenity is a quality system. It's just fairly new, and the approach to it is such that it's just not ready yet, right? Um, so like if if the development team behind Serenity decided that their number one goal starting tomorrow was was to ship a 1.0 quality professional release with a nice installer and and as large as possible support for 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 modern hardware and laptops etc uh, they absolutely could do that you, you you could say okay six months from now we want to ship a serenity os with a nice installer maybe even a live cd or usb situation with full support for let's say uh you know, pick a pick a, a line of laptops and maybe a couple of desktops, like the Dell XPS 13s and and a couple other laptops, and say if you have one of these machines, full support out of the gate, it's going to run great. Could they do that? Yes, but that's not what they've chosen to do. They they're they've got other things they're working on. They're focused more on a on making it, you know, a, a fun machine that is continuing to evolve and polish, but it's not focused on being a, an end user usable machine yet, right? Something to, that people can just plop on their hardware. So it's being held back, but I don't necessarily disagree with the Serenity team on holding it back. I think if they, I think if they ran forward with it, I think it might be a little bit premature. But that said, at any moment, Things could shake up at any moment. The the, the Andreas Kling behind Serenity OS could say, "You know what? Let's do it. One year from today, let's ship 1.0 and let's ship it on five different laptops. Let's partner with a laptop company and and ship on that laptop for one of them. And let's ship with a nice installer and let's just work on polishing everything. Could they do it? Yeah." Will they? No, I don't think so. Um, would I like to see that? Yes. I, I Lunduke, would love to see that. But I, I understand why they haven't. Haiku, on the other hand, is slowly missing their boat. Right, they've got this. They've got this opportunity, and it's a big, wide window. It's still the window is still open to them, of of doing exactly that of say focusing on on spit and polish focus on ship what's great and really have a great experience and just and just test and fix and test and fix get the get everything everything polished and great and then maybe maybe focus on some hardware support for a couple of low hanging fruit and get it out the door as 1.0 could that be a new a new linux and i th i think it could but they've opted not to and that's that's their choice Personally, I would almost love to see someone come along and fork 
haiku because I think it could go. Uh, I could, I think it could go the distance. I think it could be great. I think it could be truly great. Related question. In my mind, it's a related question. I know it doesn't look like it at first, but Trailbliss asks. What are your favorite and least favorite parts of Open Sousa, irrespective of their politics? Yeah, it, let, let's put aside politics right now because Open Sousa is interesting. Because uh, for for those who don't know, I used to work at Sousa for a number of years. I I left not under the best of terms. Um, I was not happy to say the least. Uh, neither neither are they, um, and. Open Sousa, I was uh, an elected official. I ran, I was on their, their board of directors for, for some time. And uh, I, I, I decided not to run again uh, because I did not want to be a part of it anymore. And I have, so putting aside uh, political issues, because Open Sousa is a strangely political organization, as is Sousa as a company. Putting all that aside, there's very weird managerial decisions uh, with Open Sousa. Uh, you've got the issues where where the Open Sousa project really has several different distributions, and there's varying levels of compatibility with each, and they're they're a lot the same, but also a lot different, and it doesn't necessarily make a lot of sense. They communicate it very poorly. They've got problems. They've got real problems. But one of their biggest issues is that they never seem to know what they've got. OpenSUSE over the years has had some truly amazing pieces of technology. And it, it isn't even so much so that they're engineering marvels. It's just that they, they've grabbed onto and shipped some really good ideas. Um, one of them is called the Open Build Service. And the Open Build Service is still around, thankfully. One of the best things they've got. Uh, maybe the best thing they've got. And the Open Build Service is realistically just a, a, a big back-end server architecture for building Linux packages. And that's it. But what makes it really great is as a software package maintainer, I can go into open build service, configure my source code to pull from a Git repository or wherever, build and package for almost any type of Linux package. So I could build an RPM for OpenSUSE and an RPM for, for Red Hat and Fedora. I could also build a Deb for Debian and, and Ubuntu. I could, build, I could build Arch packages. I could build all sorts of things. Um, I can make nice little tar files, whatever, right? And, and just spit them all out. And then automatically generate and update a repository. So in one system, I can update my Git, rep Git repository with the source code for the latest version of whatever software I'm working on. Increment version numbers and some release notes inside of the open build service. And then using the scripts that I've already built, have it build all of the packages for every different type of Linux system that's out there automatically for me and automatically update the hosted right there repositories. Brilliant, brilliant. Saves so many problems with Linux software releases and packaging and issues. It has for a long time. Now, what was really great was SUSE and OpenSUSE took it just to the next level, man when they created something called SUSE Studio. And the idea behind SUSE Studio was 
take the open build service, which builds these really great packages across a wide variety of platforms and automates that process. You could even build Windows installers with open build service. It's great. Take that and build on top of it a Linux distribution designing platform. Yeah. So SUSE Studio literally gave you a point and click, I'm going to build a new Linux distribution from one of a variety of different bases, right? And OpenSUSE, SUSE Linux Enterprise, and 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 what, what was essentially a stripped down OpenSUSE version right back then, like the little micro OS. It was great. And then you can build whatever you want on top of it. You can point to those open build service packages and repositories to bring it on in. You could run a variety of different scripts. You could use a bunch of pre-configured web tools to, to change, like, you know, the look and feel, the startup, your, what your uname was, like everything, right? And you could really create your own distro. And then they created what I thought was quite possibly the coolest feature I could imagine in such a thing. In SUSE Studio, once you've done all that, you've got your own, let, let's say, Lunduke distro, right? I've got Lunduke distro, Lunduke OS. I'm launching this Linux-based, OpenSUSE-based distribution that was just for me. I could then launch it, right? And bring it up in VNC on the servers, so it's running on the servers, and test it out, you know, virtually using this little web UI that was just a, a web-based VNC client. As I'm using it in the background, it's keeping track of every file that gets modified, right? Over the over when it initially booted. So if I go in and say, you know what, I want to install some software. You know what, I want to tweak some settings. I want to change the desktop background. I don't necessarily know how to do that in a script, but I know how to do that visually. I want to move some things around and redesign my UI and move these icons over there. As I'm doing that, because it's, it's a Unix-y, Linux-y system, everything is in a file. So everything is getting written somewhere. I then say, okay, I'm all done. Let's close this VNC down, and then it gives me a list of every file I changed and when. I can look at all those changes and say, I want this change and this change and that desktop file and this settings file. Apply that back to the distro. Copy them back in, and so now as it builds the distros, it puts those files overwriting the original ones, and those changes, boom, are there in the distro that you ship, and then it, you click a button and it generates an ISO for you. Yeah, no, 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 not just generate an ISO for you, like a live boot ISO, but it'll generate for you um, uh, VirtualBox and VMware drives and, and images and just ready to run as appliances. Amazing, amazing. It was such a stellar cool feature and it was my favorite by far, so they killed it. <laughs> they, just, they just up and, and tossed it in the trash bin. Um, I, there were so many great ways to monetize it. There were so many great ways to make it just this killer feature for SUSE as a company and for open SUSE, but, uh, the management just wasn't hearing it. They, they, they weren't, they weren't about to, to, to let me go with it because they, they didn't like it. That's just, that's just all there is to it. Uh, I, I made so many proposals when I was there of how we could just, you know, use this as not just a good revenue generator, but great marketing and great a great part of the sales pitch to, to so many organizations. And they just they just weren't having it. And so 
Some of my favorite things about Suze, OpenSUSE is that they really do solve significant problems, right? Like open build service. Like they, there was an issue, they solved it. They did it in a kludgy way, right? They, uh, they, it's just very cumbersome and kludgy, but they made it work, right? It wasn't brilliant and wonderfully engineered. It wasn't a work of art on the back end or anything, but it worked. But they never seemed to know what they had, right? When they had something great, they had it, patted themselves on the back, and then never told anyone about it. And that was it was truly, truly disappointing. And they have things like Yast, um, the, the software installer and configuration utility, um, which I despise. <laughs> Again, kludgy. It worked, but it was kludgy and it's just uh, annoying and, and cumbersome and, and, and problematic. But with OpenSUSE, what's, what's truly, truly sad to see is what they have right now is a confusing message about multiple different distributions that they themselves don't seem to know what their positioning is. Using a wide variety of kludged together tools like Yast. And then they don't really mention all the great things they have like the open build service, that being the, the best in my opinion. And so it, it is hard to see that. It, it, it truly is a good foundation for a great Linux system. In fact, I, I personally, I would love to see someone come along who understands the architecture behind OpenSUSE, take OpenSUSE, fork it, fork the open build service, uh, fork SUSE Studio and set that all up somewhere else and just create a new system that is free from OpenSUSE's weird management and strange politics, free from SUSE corporate's oversight, take all the branding out of it and come up with something brand new, but, but, but focus on the great parts of the system. And, and I think that would be, I think that's a valuable thing. I would love to see someone do that. If I had the time, I would do that. It, it, would, be a, a, it would be something that I would use. I would genuinely love to see that. Because OpenSUSE is one of those things that many people try and like, and many other people try and, and can't stand because in their minds it's kludgy and, and messy and buggy. But the reality is, if someone came in and said, you know what, if I just strip out this piece and this piece, all the kludgy and buggy parts are gone. And if I replace that with these really well-polished things that a lot of other distros are using, and then make a big point about the open build service, and uh, which we'd rename to something else, but just keep it the same thing, and build, build a SUSE Studio thing on top of that, well, now we've got something truly legendarily awesome. You've got a really great system. Forget about politics. You know, make a system that's politics-free, where everyone is welcome, um, which is the exact opposite of OpenSUSE right now. They literally say you can't be involved if you have certain types of politics, which is crazy to me. I don't understand that. Like, everyone has politics or whatever thoughts on things, but... I don't understand why people can't work together on on totally rad software. Like I don't know, I don't know what that has to do with politics. Like just make some rad software, man. Um, but you know, just get rid of the weird management ideas and focus on the stuff that's great. And I think with OpenSUSE, you have something truly, truly spectacular. 
In fact, I think if someone did that, you could have a very serious competitor to be the the kind of next king of Linux desktop if you did that properly. You come in and you market it properly. You focus on things like Open Build Service and SUSE Studio. Again, all has to be rebranded. You have Open SUSE, but you rip out the kludgy bits and focus on the good parts. And what and focus on like one desktop and 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 one distro. Like it's not the current Open SUSE thing where they have like a bunch of different distros. But just really focus on it. You could have something really spectacular. And it's it's a shame to me that they've opted out of that. They've opted out. And that's okay. It's their choice. But I think it's still a it's still a bummer to see. It's a bummer to see something that could have been spectacular and still could be. But they choose instead to not. It's a bummer. It's an absolute bummer. Um, uh, all right, everybody. Well, that's 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 it. We're we're coming up on the hour. That's all we got time for. Thank you for all the questions. We we did not get to anywhere near all of them. Uh, if you had some questions, save it for maybe next week. Maybe next week we'll do another one of these. These are always a lot of fun for me. These are these are really great. Uh, in the meantime. I just want to say thank you to everybody for being so awesome. Thank you for supporting me. Thank you to all the new people that have that have joined over the the last few weeks. Uh, there's a whole bunch of you. Uh, welcome, welcome to the wide, wonderful world of the Lunduk Journal. Um, feel free to to post over at lunduk.locals.com. Have a good time. Remember, keep things clean. Keep things family friendly. Uh, no cursing and swearing. No politics. If you want, if you want to do the politics, remember. Go on over to the conservative nerds thing. Otherwise, everywhere else is politics free. No politics. No politics, guys. I just want to just remind folks of that. I also would like to um, reiterate something. And uh, I, I want to be very, very clear on this. No AI. You can talk about AI. I, the AI is interesting. I've got some things I'm going to be talking about related to AI as well. But please do not post AI-generated content. I, I, I'm, I'm, I am opposed to it. Now, if, if you post something that you created that has a small bit of AI-generated stuff in it, that's okay. Right. Um, like I like if you write an article and you created an image with some help from AI to for the banner image, that's OK. That's OK. I'm not going to be weird about it. But if you just post something that's just entirely AI generated, please don't. Please don't. We, we're humans here. Uh, I'm cool with a little bit of AI assistance here and there, but uh, I don't use AI at all. Nothing that I make ever touches any of the AI engines. There's no chat GPT or Bing co-piloted or whatever, anything. Um, no text, no images related to, to what I do. Um, and uh, while, while I don't enforce that level of no AI-ness on all of you, uh, just please don't don't uh, don't dump just AI generated stuff uh, on us uh, unless it's like one of those. I saw an AI generated uh, video that was a an advertisement for a fake pizza place, <clears throat> like like Pizza Hug or something like that, and it was incredibly disturbing and funny, uh, but it was very disturbing. So if it's something that makes AI look stupid and is disturbingly funny, 
that you can post. See, I'm, I'm flexible. All right, everybody, with that, I, I'm going to head off into the sunset. I hope you have an absolutely fantastic day. I hope you get to do something super nerdy. I hope someone hugs you or high fives you or something today because you are awesome and you deserve it. And with that, ladies and gentlemen, I do declare end broadcast.